This week we are closing out the book of Proverbs. We're looking at Proverbs chapter 31. And just to give kind of a rounded picture of where we're at, let me give you an illustration. There's a young man who is preparing to take his place as a ruler at the city gates. And the question is, is he going to be a good ruler? Is he going to be a wise ruler? Now that's, that's relevant to us because if you've been here with us, we've kind of covered the topic of our work and laziness as one of the sermons. And we, if you remember, human beings were called to have dominion. We were made to rule in God's image. Uh, and, and so that looks like probably not what we'd expect it to look like. In the Bible, it looks like gardening. It looks like serving, caring for people, for one another, working. But there's a ruler. And this is, I bring that up to point out this is relevant for us because we're not just talking about one of the heirs of Solomon or whoever this text might be written to in history. But this is about you and me. There's a man who's being groomed to rule. And will he be a wise ruler at the city gates? Now, city gates is kind of like that two-block section of downtown Mount Vernon where all the legal buildings are and the courthouses and so on. Hopefully, you don't go there too often unless you work there. Um, but that's kind of what the city gates is in, in the Bible. It's a place where people met out justice and where the politicians meet and they talk about how to govern the city and so on. This is the, kind of the governing political part of the city. Okay, so the future ruler is coming towards his place in the city gates and there's a crossroads, there's a, a fork in the road. And there are two women who are crying out aloud at each of those paths. One is Lady Wisdom, the other is Lady Folly. And both of them are urging him to take their path. Lady Wisdom exemplifies attributes of God that were with him at creation. She calls out to all who will listen to come to her house and eat and drink and to love her, to marry her. She is the full picture of an abundant life lived in the fear of the Lord. Then there is Lady Folly, who also calls out for all to hear. Stolen water is sweet, she says. Food eaten in secret is delicious. Sometimes her voice is the voice of a gang inciting him to take what he wants using violence or the voice of laziness. But most often she is a flesh and blood temptress, a loose woman who exemplifies the path of death. The young man stands at the fork in the road, enticed by both paths. What will he do? Throughout all of Proverbs, the appeal to take the right path is repeated. But will he listen? Proverbs 6.20 says, My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake your mother's teaching. And so throughout Proverbs, we've been hearing the wisdom and the commands of the father and some other additional voices. And now we get to hear the mother's teaching. Now we, we, the capstone of Proverbs is what the mom has to say. Okay? The back, a background to this chapter, Proverbs 31 opens as the inspired oracle taught to King Lemuel by his mother. Lemuel might be another name for Solomon. They're not totally sure exactly what's meant by that. She warns him against the pitfalls of being a ruler. Using his position to gather women and sexual exploitation will result in his downfall. Gluttony and drunkenness will result in neglecting the needy and his kingdom. 
She challenges him to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves, to be a good judge who defends the rights of the poor and the needy. But then the next 22 verses are a poem, an acrostic poem, about the woman of noble character, the woman of wisdom. It's an interesting way to close out Proverbs. Now, if you don't know, an acrostic poem is like where you have a word that's laid out vertically, and then every letter begins the first letter of the line. So this poem is actually the entire Hebrew alphabet vertically laid out, and the first line of each line of the poem is, uh, begins with the next consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's also what they call a chiasm, and that is in your bulletin. If you, you'll see an insert in there that has the text we're going to read, as well as the structure of the text. And the reason is to show that it's laid out very intentionally to stress the main point in the middle. And then all the corresponding outer points relate to each other. A relates with B, B relates with B, C relates with C, and so on. As if to say, if you want to be respected at the city gate and be a successful ruler, marry wisdom. Marry wisdom. Because the central point reads, her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. If you want to be respected at the city gate, marry wisdom is the theme. So I'm going to read Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. This is the NIV translation. I think that's what we're going to have on the screen. Your bulletin has the ESV. It might be a little different. Um, so you can follow the screen or follow along somehow. But let's read Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. A wife of noble character, who can find? She is far more precious than rubies, worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like, a mer- like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed, and she is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gates, where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them, and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive, and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all that her hands have done, and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. Let's just say a quick prayer as we pause here. 
Lord, I want to acknowledge that this is your word, and, and we want to let it speak. And I ask that your, your Holy Spirit would speak through me now, and that we would hear you today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> Proverbs begins with, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and ends with a woman who fears the Lord and is to be praised. Now, I want to make a few notes here. This passage has been used in a lot of different ways. You've got the Proverbs 31 Bible study for women. You've got, you know, Proverbs 31. It's been oftentimes used as an ideal that is held over women as what they should strive to be. Now, the last impression that I want to give is that this young male preacher is going to stand up here and tell everyone what women are supposed to be like. Okay, so let's just get that out of the way right now. People react in a number of ways to this passage. Some will hear it and say, that's beautiful. And they're going to sit and they're going to take notes eagerly about the wife of noble character and what she looks like. Others are going to roll their eyes and they're going to say, this is just a picture of an ideal. This woman doesn't really exist. She couldn't possibly exist. Perhaps others kind of just feel a weight of guilt as they hear these words and they realize and there's no way I could ever measure up to that. But remember, this is written by a woman, a mother to her son. And consider, first of all, if you're a mom or would be a mom, wouldn't you want this for your son? Like, Wouldn't you want these things to be what he experiences when he gets old and is married, older and married? Proverbs 3 says that wisdom is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. And now in chapter 31, that wisdom takes the form of a real person who represents wisdom. So the example is an example, in some ways, both to men and women, because women, uh, wisdom applies to both men and women. However, there is something to be said here for women in particular, and for men as well. Secondly, a biblical picture of an ideal who doesn't really exist is not a bad thing. We hear 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it isn't proud. No one can do that perfectly. And yet when we hear that or print it and put it on our wall or hear it at the next wedding we go to, nobody rolls their eyes and says, ugh, what a burden no one can attain to, you know. Just because there's an ideal that no one could perfectly uphold doesn't stop us from trying and doesn't stop us from seeing the value in it that we should try to attain. This is a portrait of wisdom, an ideal, true, that we may never perfectly attain, but worth striving for nonetheless. It also presents this woman as more than just an allegory, but a practical portrait of one who lives according to the principles of wisdom. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth, the book of Ruth, is played directly after Proverbs. It was, I think, around St. Augustine's time when they canonized the whole Bible that they kind of moved things around. And Ecclesiastes came after Proverbs because they wanted to put all the wisdom literature together. But Ruth is a story of a, a woman of wisdom. In fact, verse 3, 11 says, All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Exact same words. And so, so, yeah, there's an ideal, but there's a human figure attached to this, too. Finally, remember, Proverbs, all the Proverbs, are not about formulas. 
that don't get you results if you just follow them perfectly. But they're observations about life. They're observations about the paths of life. Honor your father and mother that it may well go with you and you will live long in the land that the Lord your God will give you. Unless you get cancer, unless you die, you know. But in general, you can observe patterns in life. If you live a certain way, it'll generally go this way. Okay? Same thing here. One of my commentaries wrote this. He put it this way. The reader must wait for the very end of Proverbs to see the virtuous wife, the ultimate argument against the wiles of folly and her agent, the loose woman. This young man, now older, has made his choice, and we see him settled in with wisdom, living day by day, blessed with his heroic and capable wife. So first of all, what I want to do is talk about the Proverbs 31 woman. And there's no way to exhaust this in one message, so I'm going to blast through some observations, four observations about this woman that we can kind of take to heart, and then we'll go from there. Okay. What is the Bible's portrait of a wife of noble character? Now, oftentimes there's, there's a stereotype in our culture that's often portrayed of what a biblical woman is, is supposed to look like. It's usually pictured as some docile homemaker who doesn't have a voice for herself, is totally dependent upon her husband, has 15 children, drives a van, and hates rap music. Okay? So let's talk about what does Proverbs say. Okay? Number one, she is strong. She is a very strong woman. I want to first point that out. Says a woman of noble character who can find, if you just look up the Hebrew word for noble character in the Strong's English or Strong's Hebrew English concordance, here's what it says it translates as army 56 times, man of valor 37 times, host like army host 29 times, forces 14 times, valiant 13 times, strength 12 times, riches 11 times, wealth 10 times, power 9 times, substance 8 times, might 6 times, strong 5 times, and 33 miscellaneous other translations that occur. Strength, might, efficiency, wealth, army. It goes on to say the husband lacks nothing of value, and according to my commentary, this word ordinarily denotes plunder. Spoils of war. She is an Amazon, it says. Metaphorically victorious in battle, daily winning the spoils of war. Verse 15 says she gets up early and provides food for her family. But that's not the normal word for food. It's actually the word prey. Like the kill of the hunt. She's like a lioness who brings home her kill to feed the family. It's kind of the image that's brought up. Verse 17 literally reads, she girds her loins with strength. And that's a phrase that's only ever used for men elsewhere in the Bible. She makes firm her arms. And the language is language that is repeated from Proverbs 8 when it's talking about what God does. He makes firm the skies and strengthens the, spring, uh, the springs. And it talks about his, his strong arms and also, the wife apportions daily chores, imaging God's apportioning um, the universe and with wisdom. In other words, all that to say, her strength and her resourcefulness are seen as an attribute of wisdom that reflects the image of who God is. And so she's doing what human beings were made to do. So number one, she's strong. Number two, she works hard with eagerness. 
Verse 13, she selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. These are materials that are used to make fabric and clothing, and it goes on in great detail about all the things she makes and what she does with it and how she very much doesn't sleep at night. (laughs) She sets about her work vigorously, so she works hard. Number three, she is a wise businesswoman whose works affect the entire community. She considers a field and buys it and plants a vineyard. Her trading is profitable. She makes money for her household. Verse 19 says, In her hands she holds the distaff and grabs, grasps the spindle with her fingers. Verse 20 says, She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. My commentary points out uh, what is probably an intentional double meaning here. Because the words distaff and the words spindle can very easily be read as region and district. And so her hands reach out to the region, her palms support the district. So I think what the author is trying to do here is create a dual meaning with the same phrase to show that her work goes out in concentric circles. It benefits her husband, her family, her household, the district, the region, the community. And finally, in the next verse, her hands reach out to the poor and the needy who are in that land. So her work affects the entire community. And fourth, she cares for her family. She brings her husband good, not harm or shame. She gathers food for her family like a merchant ship bringing it from afar. She plans ahead, anticipating and preparing for various eventualities. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. Or verse 25 She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. Translation for today, she sticks to a budget. She has a rainy day fund. My wife and and Shannon, ah, she hates it when I talk about her, but they went to a cert class on their own. They're like, let's do this. And they're really into it. And um, I didn't have a lot of choice in the matter of whether I could go or not because someone needed to watch the kids. But they went to a class to learn all about what you do if the big one hits, right? If the, an earthquake or a big flood or tsunami or if the power goes out, the grid goes down, you know, whatever stuff can happen. Infrastructure disappears, what do you do? And they came back with like a, a, you know, a go bag, a backpack that's all set for what you need and water bottles and a bucket of like food that'll last like 50 years or something like that. And, uh, you know, we don't sit and dwell with fear on, on what bad things can happen, but it was just kind of like, hey, let's get this together so, so we're ready. They're prepared for uh, what might come. She can laugh at the days to come. I don't know about laugh, but she's prepared, right? She looks ahead. She watches over the affairs of her household. She is not lazy. She's not idle. She exalts her husband She becomes the matrix of her husband's reputation in the city gates. The phrase, behind every good man is an even better woman, comes out here. Because in the center, her husband's role and his reputation is built around this woman who is in his life. Wisdom cries out at the gates of the city in the prologue. And in the epilogue, the wife's praises are heard there. So, who is victorious? The whole city, the whole community is grateful 
because they are able to benefit from the husband's choice of choosing wisdom. Beautiful, yes. Impossible, maybe. Overwhelming a bit. I have to say, my wife exemplifies a lot of those attributes. But I also can say, as we're struggling to keep up with the grind of life and raising our kids, this is tough. Like, this woman doesn't sleep at night. Right? I mean, so before any ladies here fall over from hyperventilating, let's talk about the Proverbs 31 man. What? What are you talking about? Yes, he's in there too. It's a little more subtle, but if you look, you can find him. It's not all about the woman. Now remember, this is written by a mom to a son. So here are several points about the Proverbs 31 man. First of all, the Proverbs 31 man treasures his wife. A wife of noble character, who can find she is worth far more than rubies? The husband who fears the Lord realizes that his wife is more valuable than his wealth and his career. She's rare, and therefore she is treasured above all the things that moth and rust can destroy. She's more interesting than Netflix or the football game or his hobbies. J.A. Metters writes, Husbands who want to live for the glory of Christ must ask some critical questions. Is my wife precious to me? Does she sense how much I love her and how much I adore her? After God himself, would she believe how dear she is to me because of how I love her? Is it obvious? So a Proverbs 31 man treasures his wife. Number two, a Proverbs 31 man trusts his wife. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. The husband creates a culture that encourages his wife to pursue her ideas and is not cynical towards her. She can go out and buy a field without her husband on her hip or approving what she's doing. What might that conversation have looked like earlier in the day over breakfast? Honey, as you know, I've been looking into some fields for my vineyard, and I think I might buy one today. I think I've got it figured out. Go for it, honey, he says. I trust your judgment. You've been researching this, reading reviews. Maybe not, but today, right, we would. Have at it. I trust you. She can flourish because he is not a dictator. As Metters puts it, there is no room for a Messiah complex in marriage. He is not suspicious of her and refuses to control her or micromanage her. Gospel-formed leadership is not the same thing as controlling. Metters writes, It is impossible for a man to maintain his control issues while he lives crucified with Christ. A Proverbs 31 man praises his wife. That's number three. So number two was a Proverbs 31 man trusts his wife. Number three, he praises his wife. Couldn't find a word that starts with a T that equals encouragement or praise. Maybe you can think of it. So the third one is praise. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, he says, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all that her hands have done, 
and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. It is godly to honor your wife. There are no others like you, he says. I don't know about you, but I fall short in remembering to be an encouragement and to honor my wife. We tend to be, I tend to be, under-encouraging. And that should change. When was the last time you encouraged or praised your wife without being prompted to or provoked? Notice that the central point in the passage is that the works of the wife yield the husband's praise and respect as he takes his seat among the elders at the city gates. And the passage ends with the husband giving credit where it's due. When he receives a compliment, he points to his wife so that she is praised at the city gates. When was the last time you bragged about your wife to your coworkers or your buddies? When was the last time you were given praise and honor for something and your response was to point to the woman in your life whom none of it would have been possible if not for her? Now what about you fathers out there too? Do you find yourself favoring one child over another? Oftentimes, you've got sisters in the family. One is charismatic and charming and beautiful. And one is really wise and exemplifies the fear of the Lord. Hopefully both of them are. But which one gets all the attention? Which one gets the Father's praise? Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Praise her. Praise her. Now I've intentionally created a tension here. Say that three times fast. (laughs) Intentionally created a tension, yeah. The Proverbs 31 man and woman create an ideal that's hard to attain. Often we look to the other and say, if only he would act like a respectable Proverbs 31 man, then I would treat him with respect. Or if I believed she was trustworthy, then I would trust her. Or maybe it's more complicated. Maybe she has a pathological spending problem, and if turned loose, would actually bankrupt the household. I've seen it happen. Or maybe he's broken trust, and it's really hard to restore that. But what we have set up here this morning is an opportunity to look across the lines and feel resentment. Gosh, I hope he's listening right now. Or man, I wish my wife would be more like that. But unfortunately, we all fall terribly short. We tend to say, I will fill in the blank if she first fills in the blank, or fill in the blank, does this, fill in the blank. Or I will honor him when he acts like somebody who deserves it. So what do we do? Someone has to break the tension. Someone has to go first, right? The key is found in knowing that Christ went first. Jesus Christ goes first. The perfect Proverbs 31 woman does not exist, but she will. She will. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Throughout the Bible, God frequently refers to his people as his bride. 
his commandments, his wisdom are seen as wedding vows. And in Christ, he has found a way to cleanse us and to see us as the perfect Proverbs 31 wife before we ever attained it, before we ever deserved it. He sees it because it is a picture of who we are being transformed into. And he already sees the final outcome if you are in Christ. If you have invited his spirit to take charge and to recreate you. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all who with unfailed vases contemplate the Lord's glory, or the ESV says, beholding the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. He is the ultimate Proverbs 31 man and is transforming us into that glorious image more and more, even though we don't see as much progress as we'd probably like to. 1 John 3, 2 says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Jesus became wisdom incarnate, the logos, the word of God, become flesh and blood and dwelling among us. Proverbs 31 says, An excellent wife, who can find He is founder. She is you. He sees you as more precious than jewels already. He went first by taking your sin on the line on himself. The heart of the husband will trust in you because of the Spirit's transformative power working in you and cleansing you. And he knows the outcome. Already, He sees the real you that you do not see in yourself or in your spouse. So now because he went first, you can go first. We withhold right treatment because we see each other now. We have to learn to see each other as Christ sees us. The truth is we are broken people who have often shown ourselves as untrustworthy The husband says, I wish my heart could trust in her, but she can't control her spending. The wife says, it would be a lot easier to uphold my husband at the city gates and work myself to the bone if he showed some appreciation or if he had the character that warranted it. Because we are flawed, we often do have to take measures to protect ourselves or boundaries for our finances, for our families, for our kids. It's tricky when trust has been broken. And this passage is not saying that you throw all caution to the wind and just assume that this person is who will they one day, who they will one day be already. And yet, it changes the way we navigate those waters. Can you have wisdom and prudence and navigate the difficult road of two flawed, broken people working it out together, yet still not shame the other person for their brokenness, yet still see them with the hope of the transformation that Christ has already declared over them and see them how he sees them? Is it possible? We are already, but not yet, people. 
He regards us according to the vision of ourselves he's transforming us into. Not the sin that is still present. Can we do that for each other? Ephesians 5, 25-32 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and his church, who left the father to be united with his bride, to cleanse her and make her pure, to purchase her purity and her freedom so that he can look on her and say, now I see a Proverbs 31 woman, 31 woman dressed in fine linens. As Revelations 21 verse 2 says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. He has chosen us. He has clothed us in fine linens. He has seated us with him at the city gates or the heavenly realms, as Ephesians 1 says. If you find Proverbs 31 a bit overwhelming, then be overwhelmed by this. Read Proverbs 31, understanding that this is how God sees you. Go back and do that. Read it and know God is describing how he sees me here, the real me who I'm being transformed into daily. And then read it understanding that if your husband or wife is in Christ, if they've submitted themselves to him, that God sees him or her as this person as well. So the catchphrase of the day is, let the hope of Christ be the lens through which you view your spouse. Let the hope of Christ be the lens through which you view your spouse. The identity in Christ become the lens through which you view your spouse. You can deal with failure, you can deal with difficulty, but you can deal with it differently when you see them differently and still uphold one another. What is your view of God over you? Does God shame you? Does he withhold from you? Does he ignore you? If you know that that's not true, as the scripture says, then what about your spouse? How does he see them? Can you learn to see them the same way? Can you still work in light of their flaws, but honor them and refuse to harm or shame them? Can you treasure her above wealth and career and hobbies and friends because you regard her according to who Christ says she is? Today we live by faith and not by sight, as 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says. And living by faith is hard. It takes discipline. It means living by faith not only in Christ, 
but living by faith in who he says I really am, who he says you really are, choosing to live in faith according to his declaration over you, but not only in whom Christ has declared us to be, but also who Christ has declared our husbands and wives to be. Can I live by faith in who Jesus Christ says my wife is? Living by faith is hard. But can we do that? Can we have eyes to see that? Probably not perfectly, but we can start. Husbands, dare to cherish your your wife and to trust her, acting upon the faith that she is the Proverbs 31 woman God has called her to be. Wives, dare to respect and uphold and serve your husband, acting in faith that the real man you are serving is defined by Christ. And while you may not see that person yet, one day he will be totally transformed into that truest picture by God's grace and the Spirit's power. Now, there's plenty of people who are not married and are going, okay, how does Proverbs 31 apply to me? Remember, this is the conclusion of the book of Proverbs that is about wisdom. It's ultimately about marrying wisdom, making wisdom your bride. And remember, Proverbs is all about expounding upon the wisdom as revealed in God's Ten Commandments. And remember, the Ten Commandments are God's wedding vows. So as we look upon this wife of noble character, we see a person who works diligently, who is transformed by the wisdom of God, and that transformation transforms a community of people, and we are led into a new community of people who rule and govern rightly in God's world as we were made to do and who we were made to be. That's how it applies to everyone as it rounds out this book. And that's only possible through the grace of Jesus Christ, which guarantees that though we are not yet that person, we are already that person in his eyes. Let's pray. Father, give us your eyes. Some of us grew up with a picture of God who's always looking over our shoulder, ready to shame and to condemn. But in Christ, that shame has been nailed to a cross. And because we have an intercessor, a great high priest who is before the throne of God pleading on our behalf, As Romans 8 says, as as Hebrews says, we now come before your throne boldly, freely, knowing that you do not condemn us or shame us, but you see us according to this beautiful picture of the virtuous person we were made to be. And God, you release us in freedom by your Holy Spirit's power to become this person, not by our own power, Lord, So help us to trust in you, to lean into your spirit, to believe your words. Let those words transform how we see our husbands and our wives. Let those words transform our work and our community so that your new humanity can take its place in a world that desperately needs to be redeemed. 
In Jesus' name I pray, amen.